Um, let's begin with a moment of prayer. Thanks again, Father, for the time that we have had to express our love for you and our um, thanks, our praise, our affection for each other, and our gladness for us to gather together as brothers and sisters in your name. And now as we continue to worship you through the proclamation of your word, give us listening hearts and willing hearts and expand our thinking um, to truly be biblical Christians, to live lives that glorify Jesus Christ and our Father God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things. Um, if you want to follow along with these uh, books, uh, you can get them on Amazon. Anybody buy them yet? Oh, great. So you can, somebody can have this one, but um, it's just the book of Ruth, and it has pages in it so you can make notes, um, sermon notes if you want to. Also, um, I'm having a hard time today. I had a migraine yesterday. I'm kind of drained and hung over today, so it, it's... Uh, my life is good. I'm just kind of worn out. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to be starting in the book of Ruth today. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Ruth, if you have the ESV study Bible, it's on page 369. If you have the NIV, it's on page 365. If you don't know that, open your Bible in the middle and then open half from the halfway, open it up again to another halfway. It's slightly to the left of that. You can turn in your table of contents to find where the book of Ruth is. It's hard to find because it's a little book. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you keep going up, if you get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right there is where Ruth is. If you get to anything that starts with one or two, you've gone too far. So you might be looking for, for Ruth while, while we begin. Uh, I, you know, I used to have a lot of house plants. I used to have a lot of plants in my office, and I only have one plant left at my house, and it's because I, I don't like taking care of plants. I like having plants. I just don't like taking care of plants. And the irony is the one plant that I still have in my house is the ugliest plant I have ever owned. It's a Christmas cactus. If Christmas cactus have to be the ugliest plants, house plants. when it's not Christmas. <laughs> it's in a... Okay, so I inherited this plant, which is why I still have it. Otherwise, I'd have given it to my kids already. But um, this plant has been in my family for six or seven generations. One of you is going to inherit it soon. <laughs> yeah, right? So, I, okay, I, I have to admit that the only reason I can understand anybody wanting to keep a Christmas cactus is for Christmas. And I realize there's also Easter and Thanksgiving cactuses, but they're just ugly the rest of the year. They're just, yes, don't shake your head, no, it's a fact. <laughs> I, I told you recently how, you know, it, 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 when we get to the end of the summer, I, I have this really feeling of, of sorrow and sadness because I love summer. Summer's the time when the earth is full of vitality and the plants are are growing vigorously and the garden is producing and yes there are some pretty flowers that are out this time of year there's also a, it's a wonderful time to be outside to enjoy the recreation and now as you see winter has enveloped us with the dark gray gloom that we have to endure for the next eight months until summer comes back around again and in case you haven't noticed the worms of despair eating holes in my soul is Summer has come to an end. In uh, 1630, Samuel Rutherford, who was one of the Scottish covenanters that I've been telling you about, the covenanters, covenanters were the Scottish Christians who told the king and the pope 
that only Christ was the head of the church. So the king was not the head of the church. The pope was not the head of the church. King and pope are mere man's sinners who are in need of grace and stand before um, the throne of, of God equally. And, but uh, Samuel Rutherford was writing a letter. And Samuel Rutherford had recently been uh, banished. His wife and children had died. And he was late, writing these letters to Lady Colross, and she had experienced a lot of hardship in her life. It was a, a winter season of her life. Her kids had abandoned the church, and she'd gone through some personal hard times. And he was writing in his despair to give her comfort. And he wrote these really interesting words. He says, sometimes graces grow best in winter. Some graces grow best in winter. Now, obviously, we all certainly prefer the summertime of our soul. We prefer times of prosperity and times of good health, and we prefer times of, of gathering together with family. We, we want to be respected. We want to, people to, to like us, and we, we want seasons of life when, when we're without struggle and times when we're at ease. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have learned by now that there is an unpleasant truth, and that is that some graces grow best in winter. And that's what the book of Ruth is about. It, the book of Ruth begins in dark days, and then things get progressively darker and harder, and then from darkness and hardness to more darkness and, and more hardness. It looks like not only life has gone against Naomi and Ruth, but God himself appears to have turned on them. But the story is also about the things that are going on behind the scene that, that only the narrator knows, that the people in the story are completely unaware of. All these things are happening that, that this, through the struggle that God is bringing blessing because God often uses the winter hardships of our life to produce blessings because some graces grow best in winter. And the book of Ruth is not a, a deep theological treatise like, like the epistle of Romans has been. Romans has just been full of, of theology, but Ruth, although it's not a theological book, is full of theology. It's not a magnificent symphony of the works of Jesus Christ like the Gospel of John, but ultimately the, Ruth, the book of Ruth is about the coming of Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah. It's not a book full of vivid apocalyptic imagery um, like the book of Revelation. Dave, the book of Revelation. <laughs> you got it <right>. Thanks. <laughs> um, but it, it, does, it does reveal that God is working behind the scenes, and it's not until after the scene has been fully played out that you see God's hand throughout all of these events, just like the book of Revelations is about God's hand working out in history. But the book of Ruth is a, a miniature of all the details of what God sovereignly performs in the life of his people. So often we are just not able to detect with any clarity God's handiwork in our life. We just see the events moving from one event in our life to another event, but it's as we look back on our life, we see the autograph of God on the details of our life that we couldn't see at the time. And that's exactly what the book of Ruth is telling us, that we see these patterns, these principles emerging in our life where, where God has been working to perform his best purpose for us. It's been said that God moves in mysterious ways. And 
Paul Simon says, God only knows, God makes his plan, the information's unavailable to the, the information's unavailable to the common man. That's right, I got lost right there. A lot of times we don't know that. We, we don't see God at work in our life. You know, we see hardship, we see disappointment. We don't see that God is using even these struggles um, to, for our best interest. We're not able, we're not able to detect these, these patterns emerging. But the point is that in the meantime, in the midst of these struggles, we have to learn to trust him. We have to learn to obey him. We have to learn to come to the knowledge that God does know best and even the hardship in our life God is using, and, and we're glad for that. So we, we have seen so much evidence in our own lives that God has been at work, and that's what we're looking at here is now we're going to see evidence in Scripture of God at work in someone's life who has no idea at the time of, of the, the, the scope, the, the grandness of, of what's being played out. And we are finite creatures, and by definition, we cannot imagine what the infinite God has in mind. And, I think anybody who says they know what God wants and knows what God is doing should be treated with some level of suspicion because <laughs> God does not always reveal his plans to us. And these people who think they know what's going on may be in for a shock. So here we are in the book of Ruth, and we see some patterns in Ruth's life that I hope that you're going to discover are also happening in your life. And again, the main characters of the book, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, have no idea what God is doing. But we see from a perspective that even the writer, the, the narrator of the book of Ruth, has no idea what the big picture is because of his place in time. And we're able to see far more than, than they could uh, as we see um, Christ and we see the history of the church and we have our own lives to compare to. We are... Uh, um, we are uh, sometimes confounded by, what, by what's going on in our lives, and we are tempted to, to think that uh, God is either unknowing or uncaring or just downright mean to allow us to go through these hardships. But God wants us to learn, I have a plan. I know what I'm doing. I don't intend you harm. And whatever is happening in your life is my will. So trust me. Believe that I know what I'm doing. And as we learn to trust God, you know, our, our lives actually... Um, completely changed. Now, according to uh, verse 1 of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1, the story, the scene uh, unfolds during the time of the judges. Now, this was a particularly dark time in Israel's history. It was a 400-year period that starts with Joshua leading the Jews into the promised land about 1500 B.C., and it goes to about 1100 B.C., and before there were kings in Israel. And the end, if, if you're in Ruth 1.1, if you look back to the very end of, of the book of Judges, it ends with a really dark comment, you know, that, that everyone did according to their own the thoughts. Every man behaved according to his own, I uh, can't get it started. In those days, uh, there's no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it was a very dark time that people would typically, they'd wander away from God. God would bring judgment on them either on the land or he would send their enemies against Israel to straighten them out. They would cry out for relief and God would send a judge and then people would come back to God and then they would wander away from God and repeat the cycle over and over again. Interestingly, as you go through the book of Judges, the first judge is Othniel, the brother of Caleb. 
He's a rather righteous, moral man. When you get to the last judge, Samson, he's not. So there's this progression of judges who are decreasingly moral, decreasingly righteous, but yet God is using them. And the whole time Israel is wandering further and further and further away from God. And that's where the story of Ruth comes in. So it's the, it is in the days of the judges, we are told in verse 1 of chapter 1. It was a particularly dark time for Israel, a particular time when they are uh, basically immoral and have wandered away from God. And God has sent judgment upon Israel at, at that time. And it was during these... Uh, 400 years of, of, of the judges that God is trying to show them through their sufferings what his will is for them. And he's, God frequently uses suffering and deprivation to bring us and bring them back to himself. Now with that background, let's look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So again, not surprisingly, the story begins, it's in the time of the judges, and what? There's famine in the land. God had sent his judgment against his people because they had wandered away from him. Now, this is famine in the very land that God had told them to go to because it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And no place in the whole country was more blessed with the, the milk and honey than Bethlehem, which the name means Bethlehem, the, the house of bread. And yet here in Bethlehem, there's no bread. It is a time of famine. It is a time of judgment that God has, has brought on, on Israel. It's uh, this, this time of deprivation. Now remember, God had made a covenant with his people. God, through Moses, told them, when you go into the promised land, if you're careful to obey God, God will bless you and prosper you, and the land will be fertile. It will take care of you. But if you don't obey God, if you go after false gods, if you pursue your, your hedonistic ways, God will bring judgment on the land. And that, that included the loss of the food supply, that, it, that, it, that made the land of flowing with milk and honey a land of destitution. Remember, that's a, that's a pattern we've seen throughout the Bible. What happens in the Garden of Eden? Man sinned against God, and God curses the land. The land is cursed because of the sin of man. Or how about in the days of Noah? You have the whole world turning against God, and God brings judgment, and he brings a curse upon the land. And there's this, this terrible flood that happens. And then God tells Israel, if you follow me, if you obey me, there will be blessings. If you disobey me, I will withhold my blessing. The land will not produce its crop. The harvest will be blighted. That's Deuteronomy 28-something, I don't know. any rate, so here's this man. His name is Elimelech. Melech is the word in Hebrew for king, and El is a, a, a word for God. Ali means God of mine. So Elimelech means God is my king. And it also is the, is the words that go to the, the lion sleeps tonight. Elimelech, Elimelech, Elimelech. <laughs> So here's a man whose name is God is my king, and he's behaving as if God is not his king. He's, he's, 
He's behaving as if he, he doesn't trust that God is ruler of all. Well, Elimelech has a, a problem. His problem is here he is in Bethlehem, the, the, the house of bread, and there's no bread. They're, the food that they're getting has to be imported from some other country, or you have to go and get it from another country, and it's rather expensive. The farmers don't have food to sell. The merchants don't have food to sell. So Elimelech has this problem in that his, it's a difficult choice for him that if he remains here, his family could starve. He's got he's to take care of his family. Now, what man here wouldn't move if it meant your family was going to starve to death. To us, it's a real simple decision. There's no food here. There is food in Moab. Let's connect the dots, shall we? You know, let's go to where there is food. But that was a problem because for Elimelech to move to Moab was a sin because God told Israel, one, I will bless you here. This place, this land is the, is the place of the Jews, particularly he told them not to go to any of the neighboring countries that were not worshiping Yahweh. Don't mingle with them. Even more particularly, he told them, don't hang out with the Moabites. Now, we know a couple things from, from the, the Moabites, from Numbers 25 and Judges 3, that they enticed Israel to sin. So it was strictly forbidden to fraternize with the Moabites of all people. And yet, this is where Elimelech thinks he needs to take his family. And if you looked at the original text there, it says he, was, he intended to go to Moab. You see the word sojourn. He intended to sojourn in Moab. He, he just meant to go there for a little while and not remain there. Remember what happens to Lot with Abraham? Lot looks down at the fertile plain, and he sees it, and he desires it. Next, we move down Lot pitches his tents in the fields at Sodom. And we go down a little bit further. Where are we? Genesis, uh, I can't quite see it. Is it 12 and 13? 13 and 14? At any rate, Lot pitches his tents near Sodom. And then the next thing we find, Lot in Sodom. And when the angels come to bring judgment, where is Lot? He's in the gates of Sodom. In other words, he's one of the city officials. Be they've become citizens of Sodom. They moved in. So here's Elimelech who just intends to go sojourn in Moab, but he ends up moving in and, and remaining. How easy it is when you think, I'm just going to go there. I'm just going to go this far. I'm just going to flirt a little bit with sin, and then I'll come right back. But you get drawn in. We might think that uh, it's rather arbitrary and capricious for God to tell the Jews not to leave Israel and not to fraternize with these non-Yahwist countries. Nevertheless, it was quite clear this is what God told them to do. And they should obey God whether or not they agree with it, whether or not they understand it. And they should believe that God's direction is best. So it was wrong, it was sinful for Elimelech to leave Israel in the first place. And it was more sinful that he should go to Moab of all places. What should he have done? As, a, as an Old Testament believer wanting to obey God and still finding himself in this situation where there's no food in Bethlehem, what should he have done? Well, it was okay to go to Moab and buy food and then come home. But he doesn't. He goes to Moab and he, he remains there. 
Now, Bethlehem at this time was a, you know, it's, it's famous to us because we're New Testament Christians, but it was a pretty insignificant uh, town. It's only been mentioned twice before in the Bible, right at the end of the book of Judges. Uh, I can't quite see the verse. There's, there's a reference to this Levite from the town of Bethlehem who goes and becomes the personal priest of this rascal named Micah, not the Micah that, that bears the name of the Old Testament book. And then later there's this concubine that's uh, born in Bethlehem and she gets murdered in Gibeah. That's the only references we have had yet of Bethlehem because it's an insignificant city. And now we have this reference. And so we've got the end of the book of Judges. Now we're right at the first part of Ruth and there's a, this next reference to Bethlehem. But of course, Bethlehem, although it was insignificant at that time, would become very significant in time. This is the same city, the same town, where David is a shepherd boy taking care of his father Jesse's sheep out in the fields. This is the very same town where the angels would appear on that first Christmas morning and greet the shepherds in washing their socks by night out in the fields. And so, you know, we know Bethlehem is a real significant place, but at this time, Bethlehem was, was not a significant place. And this is a, a time of, of, of confusion. And like I said earlier, the house of bread has become um, the house of, of deprivation. And I think it was pretty hard for Elimelech to have to leave there, but, you know, he's got to take care of his family first. But in the process of taking care of his family with his own reasoning, he's disobeyed God. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These two, may I add the word here, predictably, these two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I've been asked about this. You know Oprah Winfrey? Her name actually is Oprah Gail Winfrey, um, that's her real actual name. Somebody started mispronouncing Oprah, Orpah as Oprah and it just stuck. But her name, she's been named after this character that you're looking at here. So during those 10 years, Naomi's in Moab and she finds herself in a personal nightmare. She goes there and we don't know exactly when, but before long her husband dies and then she finds herself with these taking care of two boys who are probably um, 10-ish when they leave because they, while they're there, they marry predictably Moabite women. Again, something the Jews were strictly forbidden to do. But, you know, you send your kids off to college and they find somebody in college and marry them. So I'm told. <laughs> So you send your kids off to Moab when it's Marian age. And then, during that time, uh, neither of her sons has any family, and then they die. So Naomi suddenly finds herself in the worst possible place that a Jewish woman could be. She's not in Israel. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. There's no man to take care of her. There are no grandchildren. There are no other family for her. She is destitute. This is a, a sign of God's disfavor, she's sure. This is a sign of, of the curse of God to be 
um, bereft and alienated and lonely with no one to take care of her. Verse 6. Before we get there, can you imagine Naomi's heart and face? You know, first she buries her husband, and then she's standing in front of her first son who dies and the second son who dies. And I, and I just kind of wonder, she's standing there at the grave, this third grave now, totally alone. And, and you just got to wonder about the level of grief and emptiness that she feels now at this third grave, you know. And I just picture at this point, she's all cried out. She's just got no tears left. There's just the, the destitution, the, the, the sorrow, the emptiness that she feels there. Verse 6, she, she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them grain. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Here's a, a, there's a fascinating word play that takes place here in Hebrew that's totally lost in the English translations. In, in Ruth chapter 1, the, word, the Hebrew word shub is used over and over and over again. It's translated variously to return or turn back or go back or to be brought back. It's translated, now we're just talking about in chapter 1 alone, the, word, the Hebrew word shub, which means to return, is, is translated in 6, 7, 8, 10, 16, and 12, translated as turned back in 11 and 12, gone back in, in verse 15, brought back in verse 21. Where do we see that in the New Testament, this idea of returning or turn back? It's the whole idea of repentance is that we turn. We turn away from our sin. We turn back to God. So here, uh, this, the Hebrews would have instantly picked up on that repetition of that same word, turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back, so many times. And they would have realized that you know, there's, a, there's a message being played out here. Naomi, she's living out this message of uh, repentance, of turning back, turning back to God, turning back to her country, and she's, she's, uh, she, she may be aware of, of, of the harshness of her condition, and she may not know what she's going to, but she's playing out what repentance looks like for us, in that she turns back. She, there's this coming back. So, the, in fact, the whole book of Ruth is a coming back story. You know, Naomi leaves the country. She comes back uh, to, to, to Israel, um, just like... Abraham left to go to Egypt, and then he comes back. That's Genesis chapter 12. And Jacob flees to uh, Aram, and then he returns, uh, Genesis 27. Uh, the people of Jerusalem go into exile into Babylon, and then they come back. Of course, we know the story of the prodigal son in the New Testament, Luke 15. The prodigal leaves his father's home, and then he comes back. In fact, that's, a, that's not only the repeated story of the whole Bible is the repeated story of life, isn't it? Isn't the whole Bible about that man has turned away and gone away from God and God is calling him back again? It's not just that God is doing this once off. There's this, it's part of the rhythm of the, of the Bible. It's part of the rhythm of, of life. Well, Naomi, she's there in, in, in Moab and she hears of God's blessing back home 
and she turns back. And in that, we can see also a message to us, which also comes from Bethlehem to us. You have turned away from God. You've gone your own way. You have run from the commands of God. And here's this invitation to repent, turn back, come back home. That's the, 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 the repeating theme there. Verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, and even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were full grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So you have to admit that Naomi's argument here is exceedingly practical, right? She says, you know, I'm, I'm too old to have any kids. Uh, you can't wait for more family members from, to be part of my family to marry. And she realizes that they're in a particularly um, narrow strait here. Um, even if they followed her to Israel, the Israelites are not likely to fraternize with these Moabite women. Their chances of finding another husband in Israel are not very good. She's advising them, you need to get on with life. You need to go back to Moab. You need to find someone, settle down and, and marry them. Um, uh, Orpah listens to Naomi. She doesn't want to leave. She wants to stay with Naomi. Naomi, there's this, this emotional bond to her mother-in-law, but Naomi She's got wise words. She's not going to go well for you if you follow me. And besides that, not only are you not going to get another husband from my family, and besides that, you're not going to probably get a husband back in Israel, but look at this. God's hand has been against me. You should get as far away from me as you can. See what she's saying here? And um, Orpah realizes there's some sense to this, and though she grieves... She, she leaves, and that makes this next statement of Ruth that more remarkable because there's nothing in it for Ruth to stay with Naomi. Whatever happens forward for Ruth under this scenario is likely to be just as bleak as the one they're in now. Verse 15, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods, Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, so more. Isn't this beautiful? I mean, this really is the centerpiece of the entire book. These, these beautiful words that, that Ruth has to say to her mother-in-law. And you see, what she's expressing here is 
way more than what we typically apply it. We say, well, isn't this an awesome thing that there's this human bond of, of love and affection, and she doesn't want to leave her mother-in-law. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? And she says, you know, where you go, I'll go. Where you die, let nothing separate you, separate us except for a death. Well, if that happened at the end of much time, where Naomi would die, Ruth would then be free to go back home. She lived out her covenant promises. But it's the next thing that Ruth says, which is truly astounding. She says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. She is not a Yahwist. Israel is not her people. Here is a profound expression way beyond human devotion. She's actually using covenant language, the language of the people of God to say, I profess my faith in Yahweh. There is a conversion taking place here. Your God will be my God. This is not just this undying love for a mother-in-law. This is a conversion, an expression of her profession of faith. What's taken place here is Ruth has become saved. Ruth is using the language of the covenant. Now let me ask you something. Where did this Moabite woman learn to speak the language of the covenant? Where did this Moabite woman come to faith in Yahweh? Things have been tragic for her. She's lost her husband. She has no kids. Her only hope in life is to go back to where she's come, and yet she's expressing in the language of the covenant people, her faith in God. Where did she hear that? She heard it from Naomi. Here's Ruth, who's watching the tragedy of Naomi's life. She watches why Naomi goes through her pain and, and her loss and her bereavement. And Ruth is expressing, even in all of this, her hope, her commitment to the covenant God. Excuse me, Naomi's expressing this. Ruth is watching. I said that backwards, didn't I? Ruth is observing Naomi go through the pains of life and expressing her faith in God. And so Ruth comes to the point of this crossroads. I think they literally are at the crossroads. They left Moab. Moab is east of the Dead Sea, there's a fertile plain that's about 20 miles long, and it's bisected by a, a gorge that is sometimes a river. They're up there. They've come down to the crossroads between Moab and Israel, and she is expressing that your people will be my people, your God will be my God. I want you to notice something here. Ruth is expressing her faith in God in the most rugged of all possible conditions. She's not in some revival meeting that's highly charged with emotion where the speaker's up there and the band's playing the same song 10, 15, 20 times and the speaker's saying, you know, don't be, don't be ashamed of God. You have to, of your faith, stand up and come forward. And the lights are turned down low. People are claiming to be healed. The cripples are throwing away their clutches, crutches. An evangelist is calling people to come forward. He says, I'm not going to stop preaching until more people come forward. Then he pitches the emotion thing. You know, 
Think about your mama. She'd want you to come forward. Or the evangelist working you for, you don't want to go to hell, do you, and burn. You want to get saved. There's no emotional pressure here. There's no promise of health and wealth. Naomi's not saying, oh, if you'll just make a profession of faith, you know, God will bless you and you'll have abundance. You'll never be sick. You'll never be, you'll never be poor. You notice that's not what's happening here. This is the most rugged of all possible conversions. She's saying, if you follow me and you give your life to God and you go to Israel, probably you're going to have more death and less family. You're going to be with a mother-in-law who's totally depressed. <laughs> I shouldn't say anything more, should I? And if you go to Israel, you know what? You're going to find yourself very unwelcomed. They are not going to embrace you and say, glad you came along. She's not going to be welcome in any social circles when she goes there. That's kind of like Abraham. Remember, Abraham's in Ur of the Chaldees. His family are idol worshipers. God says to Abraham, leave your family, leave your idols, abandon everything, and come follow me. Go to the promised land. So a transition here. Ruth is getting pretty much the same story. I'm not telling you it's going to be good for you. No promise of health, wealth, and prosperity. No promise of, of blessings. In fact, you have the most bleak future anybody could imagine. You want to join? Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women said, is this Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me and went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite with her, uh, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi basically means pleasant, and Mara basically means bitter. But Naomi's words, when she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, you can't be real dogmatic about this, but she's, I don't think she's saying, I am bitter, and she's not saying, the Lord has embittered me. What she's saying is, the pathway that she has been on has been a bitter one. And so she wants to be called Mara rather than Naomi, not because the Lord has made her into a bitter, twisted, nasty old lady, but because these bitter experiences have become the hallmark of her life. They, they describe what her life has been like. But the curious thing is we're going to see as we open the book of Ruth is that from these bitter experiences, from the pain and the deprivation, from the bleakness of this moment, from the darkness of this winter, God is going to bring out amazing blessings. But right now, that's not what she sees. Right now, that's not what she thinks. Right now, she's thinking, what did I do to deserve this? God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? You know how I know that? Because that's what I would be asking too. And if you look at her words, that's what she's saying. 
God, why and why me? And we ask the same things, you know, God, why and why me? But Ruth is mistaken to think that God is punishing her or dealing with her according to his displeasure. It's an incomplete conclusion to think that you can measure the goodness of God by your level of happiness or your immediate circumstances being blessed. She seems to have forgotten when she says, I went away from Bethlehem full. She was not full. I mean, yes, she had a husband and two sons. Why did they leave there? Because things were not good for them in Bethlehem. You know, you see people whose house catch fire, and they go, I lost everything. No matter how much they lost, it's always everything. <laughs> no, you didn't lose everything. So she's saying, you know, I left full. I came back empty. No, you didn't leave full. Things weren't good for you in Bethlehem. They weren't good for you in Moab. And you didn't come back empty. Look who came with you. There's more to the story than what can immediately be seen. We often judge God's love and faithfulness by how many desires he has met in our lives. And when our desires don't materialize, when our prayers aren't answered the way we demand them to be answered, we think that God's mad at us, or God's punishing us, or that God is capricious, or careless, or harsh. God may be great, but he's not good. That's the conclusion that we come to, because God doesn't give us what we want. That's the conclusion, ultimately, at this point, Ruth has two. Verse 22 says, they came at the time of the barley harvest. This is not just a time marker telling us what time of year it was. When did she leave? At the beginning of famine. When does she return? At the beginning of harvest. There's a picture here, too, of what's going to take place in Ruth's life, in Boaz's life. There was famine. There's going to be harvest. And we see that in the promises of God. God has been sowing and, or plowing and sowing. I guess that'd be the right order, plowing and then sowing. And now there's harvest that's this time that, that's taking place now. Now, I think it's time for us to step back just a little bit from the book of Ruth and ask basically the same question that Naomi was asking of God. Because we ask the same question too. We ask, you know, why am I going through such hardship of life? But you see what's happening in Naomi's life is way beyond what she comprehends. She does not see the picture. She sees her situation, her circumstances have been bitter, and she says, God has dealt bitterly with me. She doesn't see the fact that God is using her circumstances, whether they were brought on by her disobedience or her husband's disobedience, He's using the circumstances for somebody not Naomi. What is God doing while, Ruth is, while Naomi is suffering in Moab? God is sowing seeds in Ruth's life. Maybe the hardship that Naomi went through in her life was not about her. Maybe it was for Ruth's uh, profession of faith. And we go through life and we say, why does this happen to me? Why are you allowing me to suffer? There doesn't seem to be any reason for it. Maybe there's not. Maybe it's not about you at all. What led to Ruth's profession of faith? It was watching Naomi suffer and to do it with great faith. You can't always pick the paths you walk on, but you can pick the way you walk them, said a good friend of mine. Perhaps 
when you see some Christians suffer, and there seems to be no reason for it, maybe it's not about them. Maybe God is using that for reasons outside of them. Maybe it's like Naomi, where Ruth gets saved through Naomi's testimony. Maybe other people are being saved through your witness in your hardship. Maybe it's not about that at all either. Maybe God's up there with his buddies saying, look at my friend. Look at this faithful person who suffers and maintains their faith and their hope in God. Maybe God is glorified through your hardship. If that's the case, that God receives glory and he doesn't bother to explain it to you, is it too much to ask? As you look back on your hardship in life, and maybe not even in this life, do you trace God's autograph through the hardship of your life? That God knew what he was doing, and God used it for his good purpose. And again, it may not lie in your own life. Paul said that uh, we need to fill up what was lacking in the fellowship of suffering with Christ Jesus. Maybe sometimes we suffer so that God can, re, re, can, can refine us, reprove us. Maybe, maybe our suffering is to make us better Christians, but maybe it's not. Maybe our suffering is for the benefit of someone else. Maybe the trials we go through have nothing to do with us, but they're being used by God. So when we're tempted to complain, why me? Could it be the answer is because of those who are watching, whether those in heaven or those on earth? Maybe it's for the sake of others. Now, I still think the Christmas cactus is the ugliest of all houseplants, except at Christmas. Christmas time, when the Christmas cactus blooms, it is a remarkably beautiful transformation. The plant comes out with these little ballerina pink flowers that are, that are absolutely gorgeous. And so perhaps instead of an inherited responsibility, it is rather a shared beauty because some graces grow best in winter. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'll help us to mature as Christians and not to moan and groan and complain when our lives are hard, but maybe we'd rather ask, Lord, how are you using my trials to the glory of Christ Jesus and for your honor? Because it's not too much to ask for hardships, whatever, if it is in your perfect plan. And God, I pray that you'd give us the faith to believe not only are you a great God and you can do whatever you want to and who can speak back to you, but you are also good. And you mean us only good. And perhaps as we see that Ruth's life becomes so important in the un unfolding of the story of redemption that our Messiah, our King Jesus, will one day bear the genes of Ruth as you've unfolded her into the redemptive story that we could have the kind of faith that says, I don't know how and I don't understand why, but I trust that you not only are great, but you are good and you will use these hardships for some purpose, maybe not mine, but I trust you. And I know you love me and only intend what is good. 
So I accept from you these hardships. I accept your hand of bitterness, if that is your good pleasure for us. May we grow and mature as we embrace these truths. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.